Welcome to the Fire These Times, a podcast dedicated to the easy task of tackling the 21st century from the periphery. This podcast is ad-free and accessible to everyone thanks to the generous donations of Patreon supporters on patreon.com slash times. For as little as $5 a month or $50 a year, you can help keep this podcast independent that way. The Fire These Times is named after the James Baldwin book, The Fire Next Time, and the music is by Ibrahim Youssef. Thank you for listening and take care. So this is a conversation with William C. Anderson. He is the author of the book The Nation on No Map, and he's also the co-author of the book As Black as Resistance, both of which came out with AK Press in 2021 and 2018, respectively. He is also the co-founder of Offshoot Journal, and he provides creative direction as a producer on the Black Autonomy podcast. So we primarily spoke about his book The Nation on No Map. So this was kind of like a long conversation on black anarchism, uh, the influence of Zen Buddhism, seeing the world as a janitor, critiques of uh, black nationalism, capitalism, and liberalism. It's about uh, so many things that I'm not even going to try and summarize. You can just check out the uh, summary below if you want in the description. I will just say, and then I will uh, shut up, that as with all of these episodes, I hope you don't get kind of like intimidated or what have you by the titles. So for example, in this specific case, if you're not an anarchist or you don't identify as one, it doesn't matter. It really does not matter. And we actually talk about this specific thing uh, in the episode itself, how the labels don't matter as much. Uh, the framework is just something that we both find useful, depending on how it is used, obviously. And in the end, this is a really, really fascinating conversation. I recorded it a couple of months ago, more or less, but I had to postpone it because of like Ukraine-related stuff that I've also been doing. And I'm very, very excited to be releasing it now. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with your friends, you with your family, with your enemies, and what have you. And as always, thank you for listening. William C. Anderson. Uh, I'm a writer from Birmingham, Alabama, and I started writing um, when I was encountering a lot of issues as an as an organizer that I wanted to share my feelings about. So I've been writing and doing all sorts of movement work at the same time for a while now, and um, I'm still learning a lot and doing my best to try to put my thoughts together when I have uh, something that I think is worth sharing. So that's just a little bit about me. Thanks a lot for for being here. Um, We'll be primarily talking about your latest book, which is called The Nation uh, on No Map, uh, Black Anarchism and Abolition. Um, And you've written other books, feel free to bring them up as well. Um, can Can we start with, as I usually do, with you just talking a bit about the book, like what is it about, how did it come about, you know, that sort of thing? Yeah. Um, so the, the nation on no map is, um, a continuation, uh, from the line of thinking that I've been going down for quite, quite a while now for, I guess, really almost the last 10 years of my life. Um, it's, uh, it's many things. It's, it's a warning, um, to a lot of young radicals or people who are new to left movements. And it's also a uh, shedding and really me getting some things off my chest 
and getting away from some stuff that I don't want to get caught up in. I guess um, more generally, it's a rejection of the state as a solution to the problems uh, facing Black America. And this book is working against the idea that the formation or reform of the state is necessary as a practical political goal. So um, on the traditional orthodox um, left, the predominant uh, solution to most things is based um, in nationalism, statism, and a desire to seize or abolish state power in order to have what some feel is an appropriate version of state power or a reformed version. Um, you know, a quote unquote revolutionary state. Um, I'm using black anarchism to look at these conflicts as it relates to abolition, immigration, black history, nationalism, and, um, and the left. And uh, that's really, that, yeah, that really sums up what this book is about. It's, I mean, I know you might think I say this to all guests, but this is, <laughs> this is truly a fantastic book. Um, you wrote um, in it, I think in the beginning, that like by the time you finished writing it, you were a new person. Can you kind of talk about that a bit? Yeah, that goes back to the aspect of what I was talking about when I said it was um, shedding. It was, um, it was a process where I was letting go of a lot of different things about you know what we call the left, which is something that I think doesn't actually really exist um, in the way that many people imagine it, but it's also something that encompasses a lot of different factions that disagree and um, have a lot of issues with one another. Um, so you know it's bigger than that though. It's also um, me addressing some of the things that I thought about nationhood and nationalism and uh, things that I felt about, you know, black history, things, things that I was raised and things that I thought for the majority of my life. Um, I'm calling a lot of those things into question. And, I, you know, I, I wrote in a kind of summary of the book that it's a a, uh, a a text that you know is informed by the iconoclasm of, of of Zen, and what I mean when I say that is that when you look at a lot of the early Zen texts and um, Zen Buddhist monks, they're pushing against doctrine and dogma in a way that is such a uh, ruthless um, self-reflection and uh, self-criticism that it becomes apparent that they're actually working to overcome themselves and the very idea of what has been established as um, this, this uh, kind of doctrinaire approach to Buddhism, I think that I'm kind of doing the same thing in some ways with all of those things that I just mentioned, with Black history, with nationalism, with um, 
leftism, uh, all of it. I'm I'm trying to encourage uh, other other radicals to push for for more and to push for something greater by admitting the shortcomings and uh, the failures in history, rather than just glorifying it and pretending that everything has gone right. We have to look at the limitations. Mm. Um, as it happens, we're recording this end of January, and I don't remember, a week or two ago, um, Tishnat Han, the famous Buddhist uh, monk and thinker, died. I will try and channel him a bit in this conversation because I read a lot of his books, I would say, about a decade ago. Um, but yeah, just wanted to put it out there. And at the beginning of your, of your book, you mentioned how, as a janitor, and yeah, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coach you if that's okay. As a janitor, you learn intimately what's wrong with the society because you have to clean it up. You get to know society very well through its messes. How much someone despises you or fails to see you is apparent and what they leave behind for you to clean up. I repeatedly met capitalism and white supremacy with a mop in my hand and often wished it was a blade instead. End quote. When I read this, and obviously this is a podcast that the title is named after the one of James Baldwin's books, uh, The Fire Next Time. One thing that is, it's an insight that I kind of took to heart, you might say, and very much still is with me, all the, like in a lot of the things that I do. He has this, um, well, he has it in writing as well, but there's this clip on YouTube, which I will find and put in the description, where he was talking to some interviewer um, who I think is white, uh, based on what James Baldwin said, because uh, Baldwin said something along the lines that I am not uh, the N-word, and but th this is not me essentially but what the fact that white people created that n-word means that they have to be the ones to figure out why they did so and so the way he framed it is that i i throw back this problem at you you're the ones who invented it you're the ones who have to deal with that category and i sort of got a bit of that sense and please correct me if i'm completely off of the rails here but i got a bit of that sense while reading that paragraph specifically because quite literally of course as a janitor you're cleaning up the world's mess the society's mess but at the same time doing so you also get to see especially if you're thinking about it in that way what it is that society wants to hide what it is that society wants to render invisible and through that you get to actually understand society in ways that society and here i'm using society as kind of a a vague category tends not to want to see tends basically you end up understanding society better than society understands itself and this is why i thought of Baldwin because he always had this thing that the 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 oppressed has the oppressed understands the oppressor better than the oppressor understands themselves if that makes sense yeah. i don't know what you think about that yeah 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 that um that is definitely there that's definitely mm. definitely there i'm i'm glad that you uh tapped into that, you do get an intimate uh, understanding of your oppressors being a Black person doing janitorial work. And I've spent, um, I've spent the majority of my life doing janitorial work. I grew up uh, working class without many guarantees in terms of family, income and you know with both of my parents doing that sort of janitorial work they you know they both did mm. it so I, I i learned i had to work from an from a very early age I, I really started working and helping my family clean when i was tiny i was um 
maybe seven or eight years old or something like that. Mm. So cleaning made me have to grow up fast. And my father also did carpentry work that I helped with on the side too. So, you know, I spent a lot of time with um, day laborers and um, undocumented immigrants and uh, people who were um, also uh, dealing with all sorts of uh, various oppressions that you experienced in, in under those circumstances too. So, you know, I had to work nights after school with my family and, and on the weekends too. And it was really, it was really hard. And doing that work as a black person in the South gives you uh, an intimate understanding of the legacy of slavery, um, labor, ex labor exploitation, um, and subjugation. You know, um, cleaning up after white people taught me very quickly what white people thought of me. I saw their, you know, theft, I saw abuses, I saw advances and disregard just made made very plain. And so there were a lot of times I, I saw and experienced, um, you know, hor horrific and oppressive things that made me so mad that I wanted to get violent. And, you know, people treat you like dirt and like you are a piece of trash because you take out the trash. So, I mean, I have I have stories for days about every kind of abuse you can imagine. Um, and I was doing this from my childhood, you know, uh, and it worsened, it's worsened by the fact that, you know, you're doing it in a conservative right wing, Christian fundamentalist place that romanticizes and longs for chattel slavery so you know you can imagine everything that I, that one could experience in those conditions we'll definitely talk especially about that legacy um legacy of slavery i mean but before that you there are a number of names that you mentioned in the book and uh two of them are actually one of them wrote the forward and the other one wrote the afterwards so clearly you know them very well but can you talk to us a bit about uh folks like uh Sadia hartman um lorenzo comboa irvin those are the two that I just mentioned, but also um, folks like Lucy Parsons, Kwasi Balagoon, you know, feel free to, to mention others as well. Kind of how they've influenced your thinking in reaching the sort of conclusions that you've reached in, in the book. Yeah, I'm, I'm really uh, I'm really fascinated uh, by Lucy Parsons. I find her mm -hmm. particularly inspiring as a radical who was um, so confrontational at a time when things were very different. Um, her labor organizing history and the organizing work and even her fashion sense, <laughs> you know, like all, mm. all of it, all of it intrigues me. Um, her, her writings and her, her speeches are, in my opinion, horribly uh, underappreciated. I think she's, she's definitely been a huge influence on my thinking. Um, especially with regard to electoralism and the pit, like the pitfalls of liberalism and reform. Um, Lorenzo Comboa Irvin is foundational uh, to contemporary black anarchism. And obviously I'm, you know, looking at things through the lens of black anarchism in this text. 
So his his work influenced me after I met him and uh, Janina Irvin, who is the um, last editor of the Black Panther Party newspaper and um, an anarchist herself. I met them in my early 20s. Um, and, you know, uh, Lorenzo's book, uh, Anarchism and the Black Revolution, uh, which is recently republished by Pluto Press. Everybody go pick it up. Um, it changed uh, my whole way of seeing the left. Um, he, t- he kind of takes a blowtorch uh, to conventional orthodox leftism. And he says a lot of things that are, you know, s- extremely controversial because he just he just lays out um he just lays out, you know, the conventional left and the status left and said, you know, he just he calls it all into question and he just kind of is just smashing um, orthodoxy and questioning it all um, in a really, really needed way. Um, and his bluntness, you know, is is something that inspires me very deeply. Um, and as far as like someone like Kowasi Balagoon, you know, also brings a special bluntness and in his own right that I find amazing. Um, And he wrote with a a flexibility uh, that I admire and his new African perspective. Uh, You know, he was a new African anarchist. Um, He he frames uh, a lot of my thinking too around statelessness and anti-imperialism and more. And also the ways that he thinks about anarchism um, in a really um, digestible and approachable way. Um, yeah, yeah. And Sadia, Sadia's work is pivotal, um, is, um, absolutely, um, dynamic in black studies. It's, 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 uh, it speaks for itself, really. I think so many people know, uh, Sadia's work and how important it is, uh, to, to black studies. And she's thinking about anarchism in ways that uh, I, f- I feel um, uh, align with a lot of the ways that I've been thinking about anarchism uh, as well. And that was why I asked uh, her to, to write the foreword because I think that there was um, some, some, shared, uh, some shared ideas there for sure. And so I try to make some of those comparisons in the text. Um, and yeah, those are those are all people who are very influential to me and very special to me and that I, I cherish uh, for teaching me a lot of a lot of things that, you know, I'm still processing and still learning and growing with. Um, just quickly on Lucy Parsons. Recently, I had a friend over about a month ago and that friend, uh, well, she had heard of Lucy and that friend identifies as a radical and everything, but she had heard of Lucy Parsons, but she had, she had no idea that Lucy Parsons was black. She, she actually assumed that she was white. Mm. And this sort of brings me, I was, I was going to ask it a bit later, but I'll do it now since it's a good segue that obviously you're talking about black anarchism and the sort of the B is capitalized and the A isn't. You make a very convincing argument as to the difference between what we call black anarchism and what we might otherwise call classical anarchism, which is largely European anarchism. Can you sort of make that distinction for us and why in the end you, you still felt the, that it was important to use the, the term black anarchism? 
Yeah. So I think that, uh, you know, one of the most important things that I'm trying to point out is that, you know, Black anarchism is a movement that is distinct. And contemporary Black anarchism is a Black movement that finds its early beginnings with Lorenzo Cambor Irvin um, writing Anarchism and the Black Revolution um, after Martin Sostry, a famous political prisoner at the time, introduced it to him about a decade earlier. So that's a really, you know, pivotal text that underscored this, you know, movement coming into being of people from black power and civil rights movements toward anarchism. You had uh, people like Ojori Lutello, Kowesi Balagoon, Ashanti Alston, and others who rejected um, the vanguardism hierarchy and so on that they'd encountered in the civil rights and black power movements. And these former Panthers and members of the Black Liberation Army who developed this critique of the doctrines of Maoism, Stalinism, Stalinism and Marxist-Leninism uh, based on issues that they identified with them in movements, they, their departure uh, creates a breakaway movement that draws um, from what informed it, but it also critiques it all of the above, you know, it addresses the shortcomings of the ideologies it breaks from, but it also does that with classical anarchism too. And that to me is where its greatest potential lies because it doesn't just say so simply, we're going to go from one side of the, you know, binary to the other. It also critiques where it ends up. And so it's black anarchism is definitely anarchism, but it also exceeds and works against the anarchist canon and doesn't necessarily seek inclusion in it. Um, it actually, in, in my opinion, uh, gets closer than any other ideology that I found to actually exceeding the left. And that's what underscores so much of this. It's not, it's not just about saying be a black anarchist or you know embrace black anarchism as much as it's saying look at the truth of what black anarchism does. Look at this contribution that it shows us, um, that it gives us this this contribution that it gives us um, to pushing for something more and for transcending these binaries and these boxes that people are trapped in and can't seem to escape because of uh, limitations. Yeah, I think you, you said this elsewhere that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the word anarchism isn't something that you necessarily go towards, but isn't something that you escape from either or something along those lines. Yeah, I, I was, uh, that's been coming up a lot. It's, it's something that I got from Modibo Kadali, uh, who was a, a, a dear friend and a very influential person and teacher in my life. Modibo Kadali, you know, he gets 
he gets called an anarchist, um, uh, uh, you know, and he's not, he's not an anarchist. He doesn't, he doesn't claim that, that as an ideological label. He says a lot of things that are anarchist friendly, but he, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, go around saying I'm an anarchist. And so one time when we were talking about that, cause you know, we, we talk pretty regularly at this point. I was asking him about it and he said to me, you know, I don't, he said, I'm not an anarchist, but you know, he said, I, I don't run from it, but I don't run to it. And I thought that that was really, was really cool when he said that. And so I kind of took it as my own way of describing myself because ultimately, um, you know, if someone describes me as a black anarchist, I'm not going to say, no, I'm not. Um, if somebody says, um, that I am a communist, I'm not going to say, no, I'm not. Um, just because I don't necessarily feel tethered or tied to those labels, but that also doesn't mean that those things don't accurately, accurately describe my politics. My my politics absolutely um, encompass, um, you know, and and contain black anarchism as well as communism. Um, but I I think the thing that I'm trying to say here is that oftentimes what happens with ideology is that people bring a religiousness to it and they get trapped by it. And then they can't exceed it and they can't admit failures and they can't overcome it because it becomes more about preserving the ideology than it is about actually using the principles and the truth of an ideology to achieve liberation. And that's what you see with so many people and movements. They're much more interested in preserving the doctrine and having a religious uh, overzealous approach to actually upholding and preserving the doctrine rather than doing what the doctrine is supposed to be uh, achieving, which is, you know, bringing about liberation and new freedom and a new world. People get so caught up in, in you know, the, the dogma that they, that they lose sight of that. Yeah. Uh, someone made me think of something that David Graeber would say, and I kind of knew him and we were on good terms and stuff. And so we don't share all of our politics, but there was something, he said something along the lines of like anarchism is a verb for him. It's something to, to do rather than something to be. And I suppose it's, it's something along those similar lines of actually focusing on what is it that it is supposed to achieve? What, what is, what do we mean by freedom? What do we mean by liberation? What do we mean by changing society? And actually taking the steps towards making that uh, a reality, or at least making it a bit more of a reality, yeah, rather than using all of those things as as labels that we just attach to ourselves and sort of use it as more of a I forgot who said this, but like kind of like as a blanket, you know, as a security blanket or as a as a badge to put on ourselves to kind of compare ourselves to others rather than making it you know useful in any way. Absolutely, and. That goes back to the Zen, the Zen aspect of the text. Like, you know, I don't talk about Zen at length in the text. I just kind of mention it in passing. But Zen has been influential in that way because, you know, I think about these 
these these early Zen texts where you have monks writing saying, you know, I'm trying to um, destroy Zen doctrine. You know, I'm I'm trying to um, kill the Buddha. Exactly, Lin Chi. You know, and and um, you you have to actually work to be critical and thoughtful about everything that you embrace if you're going to actually make progress. Because if you start just becoming so attached to ideology and getting stuck in it, then you're not going to be able to admit failures and shortcomings. And that's what you see with so much of the left. It's, there, it's, so, it's so caught up in just actually having these really, really silly um, ideological uh, squabbles. And I've never um, wanted this book to be something that contributes to that. So I'm trying to make that clear. Anybody that reads this book and thinks that it's simply about saying anarchism is good, it's so much deeper than that. It's not, it's not just saying be an anarchist, be a Black anarchist. Anybody that tries to render it um, that, you know, or make it that, didn't really uh, see what I was saying or they didn't understand what I was saying or they didn't read the book um, because it's actually pushing for something much greater than anything that we know or that we have the language for. You can't just say that any ideology has figured everything out because if these ideologies had already figured everything out, uh, maybe we'd be free already. So there's a lot there. I want to get into the the issues with the left and thinking about the left. But before that, we don't often hear, I think I might be wrong, but we don't often think of looking at thinking about anarchism and looking at the contributions of Zen, Zen Buddhism. How did that come about for you? How did you start thinking about Zen Buddhism? I started thinking about Zen Buddhism because I was, um, I was on a journey, um, when I was younger, when I was a teen, and I uh, was looking uh, at different, you know, spiritual practices and faiths and so on and so forth. And I found myself doing a lot of um, study and I ended up becoming really fascinated by Buddhism because Buddhism actually was one of the first places that I encountered um, that I that I encountered um, writings that were saying question me you know that were saying you know critique me um, you know in, in terms of monks and uh, figures that, were you know influential in Buddhism, including the Buddha, um, and so reading reading those those different those different monks that were saying question everything that I'm saying, don't just you know believe it. Actually intrigued me because I found that so rare to come across anything with regard to religion that was saying don't just have absolute faith and just go based on that, but actually question what I'm saying and, you know, put it, put it to the test. 
And so that kind of pulled me in. And I started out uh, really uh, kind of being engulfed in Tibetan Buddhism for quite some time. And then I started kind of encountering uh, dogma and I started encountering um, a sort of religious practice along the way that led me to look a little bit more in different places. And I arrived at, at Zen and Thich Nhat Hanh actually uh, was, was someone who I was reading a lot at that time to um, really open, open my mind to considering what Zen was saying. And then I started reading beyond Thich Nhat Hanh and reading other monks. And I ultimately came to a place where I started to understand what Zen was saying um, much more in terms of understanding our own nature and having that be something that can be transformative rather than just being attached to uh, practice in in certain forms this is i was i don't know if you saw i was i was smiling if it just because i went through a very very similar phase i i was i i mean i remember even saying convert like i actually i became a buddhist when i was about 16 um yeah and I yeah that first, was around the same time as me when, <laughs> <laughs> when i started reading and it it was first like uh, also Tibetan Buddhism. I read a lot of Dalai Lama stuff, uh, and then I moved to uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. Uh, I think actually the same timeline. And I don't. It's it's kind of one of those funny things because I never, I never became not Buddhist. I just don't use the term anymore, which is kind mm -hmm. of a very Zen thing, funnily enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it. I did use the term for some time, and it was a way I would identify myself and find others like me online. Back when uh, Facebook was young, I would say, and that was still a thing. Um, but eventually, uh, yeah, I just stopped using it. But I never not became it. You know, I never became. Uh, it's still it's still part of the sensitivity, you might say. It's a part of some of the framework in many ways, like trying to focus on the. Uh, on the essence instead of the form, you know, that sort of thing. Exactly. And, you, um, and you, so you see what I'm saying about how it just yeah. parallels so much with anarchism and the way that I'm yeah, thinking about anarchism, right? Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it's a good, it's it's the way I'm thinking about it and just thinking out loud now, it's a good way of of softening some of the tendencies that we might see when someone identifies a bit too much if that makes sense with the word anarchism rather than with the practice or with the uh challenging you know all, all of that stuff like focusing on the form rather than the essence to use to use that terminology again right um a lot of people on the internet could use that i think right um absolutely so <laughs> yeah as i said i do want to get into the left but before that i'm kind of postponing it a bit but um it, like the the this book is very contextual as well and so there's a couple of things i want us to do if that's okay first um you uh you mentioned sadia hartman and she has this sentence that i wrote here like talking about the afterlives of slavery and du, du, Bois, du Bois saying um and this is his quote the slave went free stood a brief moment in the sun then moved back again towards slavery talking about uh, black reconstruction in America. I, I don't know the exact percentage of where listeners are from. I don't have that entire data, but from what I can tell, 
most aren't from the US. I'm not entirely sure, but I think most aren't from the US. Can you sort of contextualize this a bit? Uh, and I'm not asking you to kind of redo the entire book. Uh, people can just get it and I do encourage them to get it. But f what what is it about um, reconstruction, if we want to focus on that, that tends to be overlooked or, you know, just not thought about in, in ways that are more critical the way W.E.B. Du Bois does, that could be missed, uh, not just in the U.S., but also in the non-American audience. And the reason why I'm asking that is that if if a non and here I'm <laughs> I'm I'm putting my I'm placing myself as a representative of non-Americans, which is ridiculous, but um, there there are these headlines, right? Like most people, because America is a superpower, is an empire, most people know sort of the headlines about the United States history. They sort of know uh, the founding, quote unquote. They've heard of George Washington. They know some of the other names, Lincoln, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They would know uh, about the Civil War. Of course, they would know about slavery. And most people would also know about Jim Crow and the civil rights movement and all of that. And some people, I think less than most people, if I'm if I have this right, would have heard about Reconstruction, but maybe not more than that. Like maybe not the details or maybe why it, it sounds good, right? Like it sounds good. You say Reconstruction, that sounds like a good thing. What was it? What is it about that period that still lives with us today? Like what was it its legacy and how? How did you sort of also start thinking about it? Yeah, um, I mean, the Reconstruction era was a period uh, following the Civil War where racial inequalities uh, were supposed to be addressed. And the defeated, uh, and I say defeated in quotes, really, uh, Confederacy was supposed to submit to new forms of integration and uh, kind of uh, burgeoning kind of black institutions. And, you know, this was a time where things changed for better and for worse for black people in many ways. So while you had black people experiencing new gains, you also had a building white resentment that became very deadly. So the institution of slavery was reshaped into things like um, debt peonage and convict leasing and the prison system as we know it now. So that's where the Du Bois quote hits really hard. Um, I bring up reconstruction because I'm trying to highlight how one version of oppression can take new shape and be given new life when the state uses its authoritarianism to reconfigure and adapt to social changes. So I think some folks believe for sure that we can cut off one tentacle of this monster and then we'll be better off. Um, I wanted to show a place historically where that happened um, and the tentacle grew back with new shape and with different reach. Yeah, that's the, that's I think one of one of the best contributions in that book, and that's kind of the link to to abolitionism and to abolition. Yeah. Uh, recently, from what I understand, there's been a growing appreciation of the link between, for example, the police and the prison system, and that legacy of slavery. A lot of a lot more people, anyway, 
I would say since the advent of Black Lives Matter, and especially since the, well, I was going to say last year, but Jesus, that was two years ago, 2020, mm -hmm. um, the protests back then after the murder of George Floyd and others, of course. Um, I've So I've heard, and I say this just as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, and many of them tend to be American, and I see kind of the discourse online. And so, you know, it's not a perfect representation, but it's kind of a, a, a sense that I got that a lot more people know that there is this direct link Um I actually forgot what they were called, but like one of the precedents to the the police, uh, but they were they were like sheriffs who would uh, catch runaway slaves or something like something something like that. The Ku Klux Klan. Um, yeah, it's them, and I think they were working with the police at the same time anyway. Mm -hmm. But there was this whole policy in in certain parts of the U.S. where like their entire point, their most of what they were doing was just uh, catch uh, people who were you know enslaved folks who were who were. Uh, trying to flee for their lives or go elsewhere or cross state lines or that sort of thing right um but anyway putting that aside there so thanks for that that that's actually very useful and the the next it's kind of segues to what i wanted to ask about this tension between i'm gonna just use them in quotation like reform and revolution uh which is a very complicated thing and i admit even for me it's still something that's very difficult i live i'm someone who um you know, I'm doing okay. I don't have any existential threats or anything like that. But I'm also like a migrant in Europe, a non-white migrant in Europe and an Arab at that. And there are lots of stuff that are still make me very worried and very afraid for sure. Um, and that's why I sort of, I do understand, although I don't subscribe to it myself, but I do understand the tendency to seek for, to seek reforms, to seek what you call like relative improvements. And that's understanding it doesn't mean that I necessarily accept it as its kind of final goal. But I, I, I empathize with people who have that, that tendency. And that's, that's how I try to, to talk to them. And I, I feel like people who have that fear of, let, let me give you a concrete example. Like if, we're, if I am afraid of the far right in Europe, which I am, mm -hmm. it, the, e, the EU can look like a, a, a relative improvement, right? Like uh, compared to the far right. Mm -hmm. And the fact that the far right is capturing part of the EU uh, worries me, even though I have very fundamental disagreements with the EU itself, even like as a foundation. I, I, I do think of it as um, tied to white supremacy, for example. I don't think it's, it's possible to, to deny that. It's just not manifested in the same way, at least in the same overt way as what we were calling the far right and fascists. And that's, that ends up being what I'm sort of forced to choose from, you know, something that I don't like or something that I'm actively terrified by. You have this great quote, and I'm going to read it again if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, we must be able to distinguish between relative improvements and actually achieving liberation. This isn't a dismissal of any past victory, victories. Instead, it's an acknowledgement of the work that needs to be done given the ongoing disaster we're living in that is not being reformed away. And end quote. And I should say, I, I kind of, I, I do appreciate the whole, this isn't a dismissal of past victories because there is a tendency on the left. <laughs> and I feel like I'm just foreshadowing everything I'm going to end up saying about the left. <laughs> but there is a tendency on the left of dismissing those past victories, like yeah. of, of dismissing Martin Luther King, Malcolm right. Mack, James Baldwin, or just of dismissing everything. And I'll just name three well-known names, but others as well, obviously. As if the fact that they haven't achieved perfect revolution, quote unquote, whatever whatever that means, I don't think anyone who uses that term actually knows what that means or what they they mean by that or what that looks like or whatever, uh, means that nothing they say matters or nothing they have achieved matters. 
and I see this across the board. Like I see this from how uh, protesters in Hong Kong were treated by by those circles on the left online, especially uh, to how the scene revolution was treated and still is to so many other examples that I'm, I'm probably <laughs> spent too much time talking about in this podcast. A lot of it is on that anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you deal with that? Uh, the relationship, I was going to say tension and maybe it is a tension, but the relationship between quote unquote reform and quote unquote revolution, how, how do you sort of approach it? Yeah, I think, well, the first thing I'm thinking here is that Uh, sometimes we get consumed by this fantastical re-envisioning of history that makes reforms into liberation. And I find that to be extremely dangerous. So, you know, disaster and, you know, these issues look like many things, but among them is turning a gain or a victory into the totality of a fight. So you sit back in your chair and say, you know, we did it when a problem is still there and oftentimes growing stronger. So you see this a lot with regard to black history in the USA. The state actually has taken up black history and absorbed it for its own purposes. It uses the civil rights movement and the legacy of someone like King to push this narrative that black people have perfected U.S. democracy and made it work when we're not even experiencing democracy. So Black people live under the authoritarian threats of the state and its violence, you know, carried out by murderous police and white supremacists. But if you think that a reform brought about liberation then you can come to the conclusion that the movement is over and that freedom has been won. Now, what makes this even more complicated is that this also happens with regard to left politics, where you have different factions of the left who are looking at state socialist revolutions and saying that new governance and that new um, administrators of the state are liberation. And instead of looking at the larger picture that, you know, failures existed, that problems still exist, and that it's it's not over, you have to keep looking continuously at what's going wrong and not just with regard to um, the domination and the oppression and exploitation of imperialism and what it's doing 
to uh, state socialist projects, but also with regard to what's happening internally and what's happening inside of those projects and has happened inside of those projects to make things go wrong and to cause more problems. So you end up there with a different sort of question about reform, which is the reform of the state in a different context, in a state socialist context, and asking, okay, if we know that this is not over, if we know that things have not gone as well as they should have, then what needs to be done from here? What, what actually needs to be questioned? What needs to be reconsidered? This is a lot, these are a lot of the questions that come up for me with regard to reform and revolution because they, they're, they're connected in so many different ways. And a lot of the time, I think that people don't actually realize that they're pushing for reform um, under, under uh, revolutionary language. And so I'm trying to call a lot of that into question in this text because I don't dismiss past victories and past gains that have come from, uh, you know, places that I might uh, depart from politically and ideologically. I don't dismiss them. I, I will give them, uh, give them credit where it's due. But what I am saying is that when you look at the truth of failure and the truth of shortcomings and the truth of corruption and problems of, of, of um, injustice and, and uh, limitations, when you look at those things honestly, then you're able to actually develop further and push for something greater and push for something more rather than get caught in this cycle of trying to preserve, mimic, and make the past into a completion and uh, of, of a liberatory, um, no, a new liberatory condition. It's, it's not, it's like, it's like, you know, saying, hey, let's actually be truthful about what did and didn't work. So we can push for something more, for something greater, rather than just pretending that everything has already been figured out. No, for sure. Uh, I thought about, so I, I asked you this because I also thought of this uh, book that I recently read. So I recently had um, Anna Malika Tobbs, and she wrote this book called The Three Mothers, um, which is a story of Louise Litt. So the full title of the book is The Three Mothers, How the Mothers of MLK, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin Shaped the Nation. That's the title of the book. And that's episode 100 for those listening. It will be out by the time this episode is out. And there is this story. And okay, I'll just quickly say it. So the story, the book is obviously on Louise Little, Malcolm X's mother, um, Alberta King, MLK's mother, and Bernice Baldwin, uh, James Baldwin's mother. And I'll ask something about uh, Louise later on, actually, because it's relevant to, to a different part of the book, which is the one on Marcus Garvey and the others. Um, but so in, in that book, in The Three Mothers, 
she gives the she tells of his story and I thought of I was writing questions for her but I actually thought of asking you um, a question sorry I'm professing it wrong but anyway so that story uh, which is she, th she so she mentions how the very idea of black people owning property for example was constantly under attack uh, often brutally by 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 white people there is the example of Atlanta uh, Georgia this is one of the stories that I use that she uses in the book sorry when on September 22nd, uh, 1906, black-owned businesses and private properties were destroyed by white supremacists who also murdered dozens of, of black people. It's described as a massacre. And I thought of um, Atlanta and I thought of Georgia because of this also, which is a separate story, but it's related to the question of the role of Georgia in defeating Donald Trump in the recent presidential election with the notable efforts of someone like Stacey Abrams. And so this is what I mean when I say that I don't have an answer when I'm put in a... In a in a position or if and I've had certain conversations with friends of like, well, okay, I'm, I, I do agree that electorism isn't enough and it's, it's part of the problem in many ways. And I would definitely agree with that at the same time. And same with private property, same with, uh, you know, the, the, the notion that all we need to do to be, to be better at societies, to be owners, right? Like to own businesses, to own property, to own, et cetera, et cetera. Um, with all the reservations I have, I also, as I said before, I do understand the tendency to think that way because it has meant, and clearly it, if it threatens white supremacists in the ways that we know, and we know to this day that uh, the GOP, especially and other uh, Americans like on the far right and stuff are actively trying to dis disenfranchise uh, black Americans. We know this as, as a fact. And so how do you, and maybe it's a bit of a repetition, so sorry about that, but how do you sort of think about what would you tell to people, let's say, who are thinking that way, that they're not, they may not disagree with what we're, what we're talking about. And they might say, okay, this is the ideal scenario. This is what ideally I would like there, I would like the world to be this way, but we live in this world and in this world, we need to think about A, B, and C, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I mean... <clears throat> You know, um, with regard to the, the the question of property and 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 having ownership, uh, that comes up in the text around kind of this black capitalist rationale, and you know, um, I think that when we look at what happened. Um, with in Tulsa with you know what's called Black Wall Street or or what happened with regard to the move bombing you begin to understand that black capitalism's promises that accumulation will bring us freedom are not true um, for many reasons and I think that ultimately I'm trying to push back against that idea because my thinking about property is mostly influenced by the fact that I'm descended from people who were property. Mm -hmm. And that throws the whole idea of property into question. Once you, you know, learn that about your ancestry, um, uh, being descended from enslaved African people, the same way that people abuse the environment and, uh, extract from it. Uh, they've done as much with my with my ancestors. 
So it gives you a direct line to how capitalistic notions of ownership have to be disrupted and um, be pushed back and fought against to end up bringing about a better world because um, capitalism has created so much of this crisis and so much of this situation that we're in that thinking that it's going to be our way out is absolutely um, something that I'm against. And that's, uh, that's how I feel about the, the state as well. Um, and the, the appearance uh, of the state form with regard to the history of uh, capitalism and accumulation um, and trade and the way that the ruling class is now uh, positioned globally. So I think that there is a lot of parts of this book that are actually saying that, you know, we have to call into question these various forms and these various ideas that we have been told our way out of the predicament that we're in. Um, and that happens across the spectrum. That happens with regard to liberalism, that happens with regard to the left, it happens with regard to nationalism, and so on and so forth. So regardless of the fact that, you know, this is the world we're living in, and this is the way that people do things in this way or that way or in this group or in that group, the bigger question for me is, do you want this world as it is or do you want something greater than this world? Because we're seeing the results of all of these things that I'm talking about and how they've manifested and how they've taken shape. If we want something new, then we have to ask new questions. We have to push for something new and we have to think in ways that are new. We cannot just repeat and parrot the past and what we've been told in these various uh, sections of, you know, the political spectrum. No, I think thanks for that. I think that's a really good answer. And the the world as it is now, which obviously you describe as a disaster, and I would completely agree with that. One thing that I like to do uh, from time to time on this podcast, and I try and imagine someone listening to this in let's say a decade or two decades. So, how would you describe this disaster? to someone, let's say, in 10 years, in 20 years, and whatnot. Because what, and the reason I'm asking that is that we do have a tendency, and we all do it, it's a very human thing in many ways, to flatten the past complexities, right? Like, we, we think of, uh, well, to, to name an obvious example, of the, the period when slavery was a thing in the US in the sense of like the, the, the hundreds of years of, of uh, child slavery and everything, as if that was the same period, right? Like there is a before and after that period, which tends to erase or yeah, tend, definitely tends to erase what enslaved people were doing in that period. It wasn't just a, you know, passive, what have you, there was active resistance, there was Lots of people fleeing, lots of people, you know, killing their enslaved enslavers or what have you. Um, and so that's sort of what I'm getting at. Uh, I, I'd like to think that this specific period, 2022, being listened next decade, let's say in the 2030s, given how this decade is most likely going to be in the sense of, and here I'm using a very tactless term, eventful, um, 
how would you describe the this period we're going through? Yeah, so I would say that I describe this period as um, capitalistic onslaught and a period where um, the world is in a a state of ongoing um, environmental and ecological crisis. And what we what we see in terms of the state of this world and the state of this period is a strong need to start actually going in another direction. And a big part of that redirecting for me has to do with working against the priorities of the nation state form and what it does to fuel capitalistic onslaught, this capitalistic onslaught. And I mean that in terms of trade, in terms of migration, in terms of territory, um, borders, and the institutions that nation states rely on to preserve themselves, like um, prisons, policing, militaries, and so on and so forth. These things are driving many of the problems of this world. And regardless of what nation states may choose to call themselves or what their constitutions may offer in terms of promises and what citizenship might mean in different contexts, we know that there is definitely a a global crisis. And for me, um, the war and the domination that has been uh, inflicted on this planet by the state form, by imperialism, by capitalism, absolutely frames uh, the major problems of, of this era that we're in. So I don't know if that makes sense, but that's where, that's what I'm thinking about right now. No, thanks for that. Um, yeah, as I said, it is something that I, it's always difficult and you always wonder how, how this would sound like in 10 years, given how things are uh, likely worse off in 10 years, hopefully not, but seems to be what trends are, the trend is going. But in any case, thanks for that. Um, Another thing I wanted to ask, and those that's kind of like two questions that are, uh, well, they're kind of the same question, or at least they're interrelated. So the first question would be on the legacy of the Black Panthers Party. How, how would you see that today? And the second question, which is intersected with that one, it, you argue in the book that a lot of the, um, I mean, its legacy is basically cosplayed rather than uh, truly w learned from. Can you sort of uh, make that argument again, if that's okay? Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that one of the things that, um, comes up for me with regard to the Black Panther Party is that 
there are things that we should do that the Panthers were doing. But there were also things that occurred within the party that don't have to be repeated. So instead of um, just trying to copy what the Panthers did and said, we have to analyze what went right and what went wrong. And so the Panthers were not one thing. Uh, they were different. There were different chapters. There were different people. There were different leaders, and there were internal conflicts. But people reduced them to one thing and one ideology, which shows that we're not doing them justice in our study. So, in order to do them to do justice to the Panthers and take their work further, we have to sit with the elders and see what they said. Um, about them, but also listen more closely to those who were overlooked for the sake of a glorified elite, the everyday women, children, and others whose testimony also matters to what was accomplished um, gets lost in this kind of glorified tale of leadership that only remembers the famous Panthers, that only remembers the famous chapters um, and the famous events but there, there's a need for a complete uh, historical uh, um, study of the Panthers and a complete remembrance and a complete analysis of the different things that happened within the party and as a result of the party, as well as the departures um, and different ways that people went off, such as you know uh, the folks who ended up creating the Black anarchist uh movement that i'm uh writing about so yeah thanks for that uh and sort of along similar lines but also not really you do have a critique of quite a quite a few um critiques of uh what we might call black nationalism from the various angles that you explore so like whether we're talking about the nation of islam the the unia and i mentioned before louise little she was actually involved in that one if i'm not mistaken the the new Black Panthers Party, which is quite different than the Black Panthers Party, and many other names that I'm sure I'm forgetting. And you use um, the, the thoughts of the work of someone like Paul Gilroy, for example, to critique those movements and those ideologies. I will just quickly say, like, Paul Gilroy for me was, when I read parts of the Black Atlantic, it was part of a class assignment some years ago, um, that was, I think, one of the most useful ways that I thought at the time, I haven't revisited it that much since, but of thinking about uh, different things. Because so the notion of, the notion that the, the very idea that one can belong to a certain heritage across a state line, and specifically in his case, obviously the Atlantic um, being this place of movement, often forced movement, obviously, is helping me rethink a bit the Mediterranean Sea. And it's still kind of a very, um, you might say it's on draft mode, but I am I am starting to think about, I'm trying to think about what, what does the sea, the Mediterranean Sea specifically represent these days, given that it's at the same time, if you look at like ancient history or whatnot, it's the place of adventure, the place of trade, the place of what have you, you know, the Odyssey, what have you. Whereas today, 
it's very much a, it's a graveyard it's it's quite literally a graveyard of thousands thousands of people died there and they drowned to their deaths in the past few years because of the eu's um obsession with uh what i i, I usually call fortress europe uh thinking of the continent as a fortress to be protected against and the bodies to be protected against tend to be always uh, black or brown. That being said, how how does Paul Gilroy's uh, work how how does it inf- how does it inform your critique of what we're calling black nationalism and and what is it for those who don't know? Yeah, so I'm I'm really talking about nationalism generally in this text, mm-hmm. and. Um, you know, there are different types of nationalism. Um, you know, you have revolutionary black nationalism and you have reactionary black nationalism, uh, with the latter being, um, much more problematic, but I'm actually critiquing nationalism, black nationalism more broadly. Uh, and it's, it's, I don't, I don't, maybe it's not even a critique because maybe it's like I said, maybe it's more of a warning. Um, of some of the risks that come with black nationalism. Um, I'm drawing from Gilroy uh, and his his writing in an article called uh, Black Fascism. And sometimes people cling to nationalism in a way that I'm very much trying to work against because ultimately this version of nationalism that I see a lot of people clinging to, even, even revolutionary nationalism, is about, um, is about working towards uh, a nation, a, the nation state form um, and looking for liberation in it or through it. And so I think that that can be let go of actually and largely because I see variations of it where it becomes homogenizing and relies on essentialism in a way, in way, like in ways that bother me. Um, And I quote Gilroy uh, because he points out the danger in many of these forms with regard to how they take up an essential innocence. And he warns that when you mix uh, biological notions of innocence and inherent goodness with race and nation and ethnic ties, that you run the risk of fascism. And he notes that, you know, those things get even worse when you pair it with the modern nation state, which conditions it and helps expand it. So understanding this raises questions for me about Garvey, about uh, black nationalisms that drew from him um, and more because somebody like uh, Garvey, as complex as he was, he he did credit himself at one point with uh, influencing uh, Benito Mussolini, and he was also very apologetic towards 
white supremacists. And you have to ask questions about why that was and what he, what sort of credit he was giving them and what sort of favor um, uh, he might have done to uh, giving them a sort of legitimacy uh, and some of the things, the various things that he said that were uh, again, apologetic, and uh, and and maybe even um, maybe even uh, obviously generous. So this has been a recurring problem for many versions of nationalism. Um, and then there's you know obviously issues of hierarchy and belonging and exclusion that I take issue with tied to the idea of the nation. And so ultimately I'm pushing back against this idea that just having a black nation um, is going to be something that frees us and that it brings about liberation because there's a lot historically, again, that you know, that throws all that into question. And I think that if you are looking at more uh, more um, critical history of, of Black nationalism and the successes and the failures, that's pretty clear. And I'm not saying anything controversial, but what has to happen is there just has to be a truthful admission that there is a lot of risk and a lot of danger um, and it's not just, you know, hey, we just need to do revolutionary black nationalism and we'll and, you know, we'll get free. Hmm. That actually makes me think of the many, many limitations historically. And I mean, this is a critique that I can make today of of something like Pan-Arabism, for that matter. Mm-hmm. The um, I'm not going to get into it too much because I do in like other episodes, but there is an argument to be made that in, um, for example, uh, in in some of the founding mythology of Pan-Arabism, at least after the 40s, after 48 and the establishment of the State of Israel, they viewed their, I'm saying very, very vaguely here, a lot of people disagreed with that, but the general tendency was to see Pan-Arabism as the answer to Zionism. And if not theoretically, but at least in practice, the politics was sort of that. What that ended up doing, and this is something, among other things, again, I'm simplifying a bit, but among other things, one thing that is sort of excluded is the very possibility that one can be Arab and Jewish at the same time. And this is something that ended up actually benefiting the state of Israel, which is ironic from the point of view of Pan-Arabism, because the state of Israel was able to basically say to these, uh, what would end up calling Mizrahis, or Eastern Jews, as they would be called in Hebrew and in Arabic. So Arabs, uh, some of them would be identified as Arab and Jewish, some of them would say Jews from Arab lands, you know, it's complicated, uh, by saying, well, you're not welcomed over there, quote unquote, in the Arab world, so you should come over here. I'm simplifying, but that's sort of, that's sort of part of the general, ten- the, the general historical trend. And this is something that Pan-Arabism in its... Um, I don't know how to say this uh, nicely, but in its ideological rigidity, wasn't able to conceive of plurality, 
wasn't able to conceive of the fact that one can be in theory one could be for example jewish and arab one could be christian and arab one could be muslim and arab etc etc and many would agree with that but in practice it became more and more difficult to do because there was this tendency to among other things and again i'm simplifying to focus on the hierarchies to focus on having uh, leaders like Amman Abdel Nasser like some of the others mm-hmm. as the center of an ideology and when that happens you really see how you really end up seeing its fragility because all that requires what a one or two military defeats and then the his death of like the death of Nasser himself for the entire project to be put into question and ultimately see its own demise because that the found its foundations were very weak in that sense because they didn't accept a grassroots uh, focus diversity pluralism and so on and so forth and weirdly enough although it's kind of an awkward segue but I wanted to ask yeah I mean so it's a couple of questions if that's okay before we get into the the book section the first one which is related to how we think about the left and all of the problems that you you were talking about the difference between uh, internationalism as it's usually understood and something like intercommunalism it made it makes me think and so i'll ask you to explain that difference but before that it made me think of something that um yasin harsh saleh who's the syrian writer intellectual and i will have him on uh, soon hopefully uh, he was talking about kind of the pitfalls of solidarity and solidarity from the perspective of a Syrian intellectual, Syrian radical, Syrian activist, what have you, in all of the other categories, we, we've really seen in the past decade how limiting it's been. And, and I'm, I'm saying limiting to even be nice here. I could say much, much, you know, not nice things. Um, because it's, it's okay if you're a Syrian refugee. Most people on the left would sort of say, we need to be pro-refugee. We need to, you know, extend the welcoming hand, uh, in London, the chance would be like, you know, say it loud, say, say it clear, uh, refugees are welcome here and so on and so forth, which is all fine and, and well and stuff. Obviously, I agree with that. But what that did not extend to was recognizing that a lot, if not the majority of those refugees were fleeing the Assad regime, were fleeing the state. And that many of those were actually seasoned revolutionaries. You know, they were they had practical knowledge. They they had done things that most of us uh, never had to do because just we've been luckier. We didn't have to live under the Assad regime or what have you. They had organizational skills that are very valuable. Um, if you know, if not just to recognize them, to to kind of not strip away their agency, but even from like a purely pragmatic point of view, as someone who supposedly on the left, um, we have this uh, desire to you know. Uh, Again, this whole themes that we were talking about, liberation, freedom, what have you, challenge, oppression, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Then it, sh- it should follow that we would learn from people who've had different experiences that they had something to tell us. Right. Generally speaking, we can accept them as refugees because then they've been sort of, you know, you, you use the humanitarian language, which I think is very dehumanizing a lot of the time. But we wouldn't treat them as equal political agents, as agents, as people with agency who've done things that we can actually learn from. And so that would be the pit for the critique of solidarity, as it's usually talked about, that someone like Yasin Arsala would put forward, in which I definitely agree with, and I'll get into it more with him. But that being said, I, if I understand it correctly, I see something similar or similar enough 
in the difference between something like internationalism and something like intercommunalism or even like something like charity and something like mutual aid maybe and that seems to me and please feel free to correct or to expand upon it seems to me that the main difference is how involved do i have to be or how how much do i feel like this is a shared project a shared political project a shared communal project maybe like i i have something to give to that person let's say but that also that that person has something to give to me if that makes sense can you explain those the difference at least in your book between internationalism and intercommunalism sure sure well i'm really talking about uh, <clears throat> i'm really talking about uh intercommunalism as the ideological departure from revolutionary nationalism uh, to an updated outlook um, that addresses the changing nature of conditions as it relates to nation states and communities of the world. So Huey Newton, um, Huey P. Newton theorized, theorized it and it is often overlooked uh, to a large extent and likely because it has admissions that contradict his preferred, you know, nationalist historical image with, uh, with some people. But Newton was talking about the global nature of the ruling class and suggesting that nationalism was increasingly obsolete since the world was uh, becoming more and more of, in a state of what he called reactionary intercommunalism. So, so reactionary intercommunalism is the imperialist uh, siege upon all the communities of the world, dominating the institutions uh, uh, that people have to such an extent that they were not being served by the institutions where they live. So he was pushing for what he called revolutionary intercommunalism, which informed the survival programs of the Panthers. And with regard to the survival programs, you're talking about, you know, the free breakfast program, you're talking about, you know, the uh, free healthcare programs and so on and so forth that they had to meet the needs, material needs of people who are not being, again, served by the institutions around them that are supposed to be serving them uh, from the state. So, um, for Huey, uh, revolutionary intercommunalism meant uh, seizing the means of production and redist redistributing wealth and technology in a way that was egalitarian to communities across the planet. And he was questioning nationhood and nations and states and uh, their existence in the process of re-envisioning um, their ideological position. So the revolutionary and reactionary binary of nationalism is kind of transplanted here to describe conditions and talk about how to achieve a stateless 
society without it being reactionary. And Huey was pushing against Marxist-Leninist doctrine at the time. He said um, when he when he he gave a, a speech at uh, Boston College, I want to say, um, where he is talking about this, and he said, you know, people think that they're Marxist-Leninist, but they're not create, but they're not creative, and they refuse to be creative. And he said that they were uh, tied to the past. And he said that they are, you know, that they're tied to these, to these, you know, um, types of thoughts that are just dogma, which he, which Huey called, Huey called dogma flunkyism. He called it flunkyism. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, you know, it's, it's, he's pushing, he was pushing something that was a, a reconfiguring politic that goes beyond the nation and questions the state and takes up a new look at the world. And so it's a politic that if nothing else brings an emphasis on meeting material needs beyond borders into new perspective and it questions the orthodox in the process. So I think that it, you know, based on the conversation we've had thus far, it's pretty clear why something like that would inform a lot of what I'm saying, as well as it's informed a lot of, um, uh, Black anarchists um, and 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 uh, black anarchic politics and autonomous politics, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot for that. And this this idea that he was saying, you know, the the lack of imagination, is actually a good segue to the the last question I want to ask before getting to the book section, which is I'm I'm very much into um, stuff like solarpunk, uh, climate fiction, futurisms, indigenous futurism disability futurism and Afrofuturism, which is what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, I, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on where, whether it's Afrofuturism specifically or futurism more broadly and the role that that can have. And so for those who don't know, I'm talking basically about like speculative, I, I, like, I tend to like to call them speculative movements. It's obviously largely fiction, it's fiction based, it's like stories in the future and so on. But the very first episode of this year was on the political economy of solarpunk with Andrew Dana Hudson. And it was very much about this, you might call it like the non-fiction application of something that's otherwise fictional. Although I, I tend to like to challenge those two binaries as well, but that's maybe for another time. Um, what do you see the role of futurism and Afrofuturism Afro -futurism specifically, and the others, indigenous futurism, disability futurism and so on? um in in creating the conditions for more liberation if that's kind of the way to to put it like what's the role between futurism and liberation if i can put it that way yeah i don't think i actually really actively use the term uh afrofuturism a lot um in any of my work um but i do talk about um talk about in the text. I do talk about thinking about poetry from the future, uh, drawing, mm -hmm. drawing from Marx. And really, really, it's very, it's pretty simple. I mean, I'm, I'm saying that uh, ultimately, if we are going to overcome the problems that we're facing, that we have to stop 
overemphasizing the past. And we have to actually think and put more, um, more emphasis. And it doesn't have to be an imbalance. I'm just saying more than what currently exists. I'm just saying we need to put more emphasis on thinking about the future than what currently exists in a lot of movements that I feel are stag- stagnant because they are so caught up in the past. And that has a lot to do with my critique of the left. I think that I think that the left is really, really, really stuck in the past and seems like it, it can't escape it in many ways. So for me, I'm I'm actually, I guess maybe even ironically, um, pulling from Marx, who is, you know, who is over, you know over uh represented i feel like largely in like the uh, imagination of the left who um all who i feel also gets overemphasized i'm actually pulling pulling from from him to talk about again that that poetry of the future and what it means to actually imagine a movement and to envision liberation and achieve it and work towards it without being stuck in uh, historical debates and, and predicaments and problems uh, where people uh, are, are, are trapped in these, these, um, these cycles and these, you know, these binaries again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And I find when it comes to solar punk specifically, that's when I was, that's what I've been most, um engaging with you might say i don't write it myself i'm pretty crap at fiction but i like to read it and um actually later today the, one of the reasons why we're recording this at this time is that later today i have a class on climate fiction because i'm hoping to yeah just get better at it but in any case the the reason i i i want to is because i found i have i have some background in 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 the sciences i did environmental health as an undergrad and so i I, I understand the threat of climate change, I would say, very well. And sometimes the fear of that is very paralyzing. Sometimes the, well, often, it's the, the kind of what you might call climate anxiety or climate grief even, is can be very paralyzing, can be very, very, um, uh, what's the word I was thinking of? Heavy, I guess, that's, that's a word I can use. Um, one way that I found to challenge that to make it more palatable, you might say, is to read these stories, is to kind of get into a space where I, because most of the time it's just like, you know, something set in 50 years or whatever, and something is happening, and it doesn't deny the, dif- the ongoing difficulties even that may still be, be with us in 50 years or 100 years or whatever, but the entire idea is that we, we adopt this optimistic view of things in the sense of optimist while realist, as one would say, while realistic. Uh, in the sense that maybe we did find some solutions, maybe we did find some ways of restoring the balance between mankind and nature, for example, or what have you. And I mean, those are fictional stories, so you don't read them thinking that this is what's actually going to happen. But just reading about them makes it slightly more real, which helps me, at least, in in the day-to-day basis, because otherwise it would just be me reading through the news, and the news is very bad, and reading through the predictions, and they tend to be very bad. 
and not being able to actually do much about it or think about it or you know it's this entire idea of one intellectual called uh, Amitav Ghosh he called it the unthinkable like climate change being this unthinkable thing and my point is to try and make it thinkable essentially um so yeah that's what that that's sort of where I'm coming from it and afrofuturism has a similar role in the sense of thinking about the future as being very different from the present but and also um in order to change the present, we need to be able to have different imaginaries about the future. So it's kind of along the similar lines of what you talked about, I think, I feel. Right, right. Um, it's, 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 I don't mean to cut you off, but um, yeah, it's, it's, it's directly tied to, um, to, uh, you know, what, like what I was, what I kind of am constantly talking about when I discuss this text, which is, you know, um, and when I when I was just talking about quoting Marx, you know, saying, you know, like we have to take our, our poetry from the future um, uh, and and not just from the past and, and you know, strip off the superstition uh, with regard to the past. Um, yeah, it yeah. is it is absolutely important to be able to learn from again from from failure by removing mythology and superstition about what's already taken place. So you, you know, it, it's, it's crucial. It's just absolutely crucial. Definitely. Um, all right. Well, before getting into the book session, can you kind of tell folks where they can find you and tell, tell folks as well about your podcast, the one you co-produce? Sure. Sure. Uh, the name of the podcast is black autonomy podcast. Um, and it is with Lorenzo Camboa Irvin and Janina Irvin, and they're just, you know, telling their story and talking about, uh, black anarchism and talking about the history and is really, uh, heavily focused on organizing and, um, and tactics and strategies. It's, it's for people, um, who just kind of want, you know, to hear things explained pretty simply and quickly. Um, it is designed for people who are not necessarily into podcasts. We keep it short and sweet. Um, I think it's a good podcast. I highly recommend people listen to it. Um, and I highly recommend so as well. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. And, um, also, uh, people can find me on Twitter at William C S O N William season. And, um, yeah, uh, they can also uh, check out um, the work that we're doing at Offshoot Journal. Um, Offshoot Journal is a great publication that we launched. Um, me and uh, a couple of other friends uh, launched um, last, I forget what year it is, but yeah, I think it was last year. <laughs> <laughs> we launched it last year, and uh, with that, we have uh, been trying to do some, some great things. It's a, it's a fun project and we, you know, we work on it when we can and it's been going, it's been going well. And we also have the Soul Street Institute as well, um, which is tied to Offshoot Journal where we're highlighting the work and uh, the writings of um, Martin Soul Street who influenced and was one of the founding figures of Black Anarchism. So check that out too. Um, it's, it's all, uh, really, really fascinating stuff going on. So check out all those things. Amazing. Thanks for that. Um, all right. So what are three books that you would recommend to our listeners and why? 
Three books I would recommend to other listeners would be Dion Brand, um, A Map to the Door of No Return. That's just a um, amazing, amazing, amazing book um, that uh, asks a lot of the questions that uh, I'm bringing up um, in this text. It was very influential on me writing this text. Um, I read it. Um, when I was kind of first starting to uh, start asking a lot of the questions that come up for me, and it just it just blew it just kind of blew me away. I can, I don't even know how to sum it up in a short way, but it's uh, Dion Brand is an amazing, fascinating, uh, dynamic writer and poet uh, who who you who does so many things in this book that it just blows your mind all of the different questions that are raised all of the different confrontations that are had the poetry and the prose just it's it's all there so just um check out that that text i think it it has a lot to offer um to uh, many diasporas and many people thinking about uh belonging thinking about place thinking about citizenship nationalism and so on um, I would also recommend um, I would also recommend um, the Terms of Order by Cedric Robinson. Uh, that that book um, actually changed a lot for me when uh, I was working on this text as well. It helped me uh, think about anarchism in a critical way, and it also uh, helped me think about um, think about uh, the left and Western radicalism more, more largely in, uh, in a big way. And, uh, it's, it's, it's just a, it's a text that I feel like, uh, kind of gets, um, that kind of gets, um, left behind sometimes in favor of, uh, black Marxism, which is, is, uh, you know, the work that most people think about when they think about Robinson. Uh, and, also check out uh there's so many books i want to recommend but yeah um check out facing reality um by clr james and grace lee balls and you know that is uh that is you know clr again this is a book that people when people think of clr james they think of the black jacobins their history of pan-african revolt but clr james wrote much more than that and when you read uh, a lot of his other writings, you get a much bigger picture of uh, his politics um, and the contributions that uh, he he had to offer. Um, Facing Reality is a text where he is um, well alongside Grace Lee Boggs. They're 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 pushing against um, a lot of the problems of state violence and the state form. They're also pushing um, against uh, Stalinism and they're pushing against um, sexism and union bureaucracy and just so many things are happening in that text. And it, you know, it revolves around the uh, uprising that took place in, in Hungary. And so, yeah, check that text out too. That is a, a pretty important, a pretty important text. I think that, uh, that people should read well william um thanks a lot i don't know how to say it <laughs> thanks a lot for your time uh this was fantastic uh 
yeah, I highly, highly recommend people get your book. Again, it's called The Nation on No Map, Black Anarchism and Abolition. It's by AK Press. Uh, and check out everything that William recommended because I'm going to do the same. Thanks for having me. This was a this was a fun discussion. Defy These Times is hosted by myself, Joey Ayoub. I am also its producer, researcher, writer, and sound editor. If you want to help turn this project into a full-time job, please head out to patreon.com slash times to support it. These episodes are part of a bigger project, which includes resources, a newsletter, and eventually YouTube video essays as well. As always, thank you for listening and take care.